Tell me something this morning, church. And what do you base your salvation this morning? Where do you put your hope? What foundation do you have? What reason do you have to sing Hosanna this morning? I'm sure you've probably thought of these kinds of things before Joe mentioned it this morning and before we turn our attention to the text. I just want to take a few moments for us to reflect inside of ourselves before we come to the reading of the Word of God and the studying together. We sang good songs of worship, but we have to face the fact that there was a whole group of people that sang Hosanna. Blessed comes, is he who comes in the name of the Lord who sang that, and one week later, less than one week later, several days later, they were crying out, crucify him. And we all probably would say we would never do such a thing like that. And yet it occurs to me, as I think of that final song that we sang, it occurs to me that when we profess here, here when we're gathered with believers, we profess that our salvation is by grace through faith, that that's the way that we are saved, that we are basing our salvation only on the work of Jesus Christ. And we turn around and we go throughout our week and we somehow think it rests upon what we do or don't do we somehow feel like we have to work hard enough or we have to measure up or we have to somehow bring something to the table, then I think in some way we're doing exactly that. Because it is our works. It is us. It is the things we have done. It is our defiance of God. It is our allegiance to ourself. It is our wanting to bring glory to ourselves. It is our pursuit of our own flesh. It is those things that have brought Jesus to the cross. And it is every one of us who's responsible for that, right? You can't look around and say it's because of that person. It's because of those people out there. It's because of their sinful attitudes. It's because of their actions. Scripture's very clear. There's none righteous, not one. If it's based on what we've done or what we bring to the table, then every one of us have caused Christ to go to the cross, which means if we proclaim Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord this morning and turn around and this week try to earn our salvation in some way, we have cried out, crucify him. But a few days later. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 20. I want to make just a quick comment here. I don't know how many of you even do this. If you don't, then you won't notice that there's a correction to be made. But if you do, uh, there's a correction to be made. Last week, I put at the bottom of your handout, which is on the back side of your bulletin, I put down that we're going to be covering uh, just uh, uh, verses 13 to 16 today in, study, in studying through this. I, this rarely happens, by the way. Typically, it's the other way around. I, I, I shorten the amount of verses we go through. I chose to lengthen the amount of verses and read all the way through uh, the end of the chapter today. So we're going to cover a few more verses than what we have planned or what I had planned initially. If you have been, I don't know if you do this or not, but if you have been reading the verses uh, in, the weeks, uh, in the week leading up to Sunday, then you are going to be missing a few verses, and I apologize for that, but I think uh, we'll, we'll manage this fine. I'm going to read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, reading in verse 13, and reading now through the end of the chapter through verse 20. Pay attention to these, the most important words you will hear from our sermon time this morning. Paul wrote, verse 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, and we also thank God constantly we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, 
the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, strong words he's writing here, but wrath has come upon them at last. Or depending on what translation you might read, wrath has come upon them completely or forever. Verse 17 now. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. God, thank you for the text this morning. Thank you for the words that were inspired by your Holy Spirit. These were written by Paul to real people who became believers in this city known as Thessalonica to us. Thank you that, there's, that this happened, that this occurred, that there was uh, this pocket of believers. Thank you that the gospel goes forth, it was received, and that it brought forth fruit. God, we say all those things in thanksgiving to you because inside of us this morning, there's a desire, a hope that the same will happen here as it has been happening, that the same will happen and increasingly so here, that the word of God may be received not as words from men, but from you, that it may be working in us, that we might in fact become imitators of the churches we're reading about. May it be so, God, according to your plan, according to your purpose, according to what you do inside of us. I want to be so clear, Father. We want to be so clear. I hope it's not just me saying it, God. We want to be so clear. We don't do any of those things. We can, we can turn to you. We can seek you. We should. We want to do those things. We can, we can just make decisions that we want to lay aside what, what it was our flesh, what was from before the old man, and we want to be renewed. But it is you, God, who works in us. It is your will to change your spirit that, that, that rearranges things, that helps us to say no to our flesh and to die to ourselves that we might be born again. Thank you for the work you've started. We thank you that you are the one who will do it and will bring it to a completion. Teach us now this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I entitled my sermon this morning, Our Glory and Joy, coming from that very last phrase. So we're going to work our way to that phrase, but we're going to start actually back in verse, uh, verse 13, which is uh, where we began reading this morning. And I want you to see that Paul now is actually kind of looping back and, and coming back to what he started saying as soon as he had his introductory verses. You remember, as we, we, got, we got just like a short bit into this letter. We read verse 1, his, his, uh, his greeting to them, and then he, he launched in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, we give thanks. Thanks to God always for all of you. And he began to name the reasons why he's giving thanks. And, and as, he, as he was reflecting on the thanksgiving that he had for their, their response to the gospel, he turned the corner. We spent the last two weeks with this. We turned the corner and he began to talk about how they came with the gospel, how they behaved. It gave us, by the way, a, a, a 2023 church here in White Pitch, Michigan. It gave us a glimpse at the, the parts that have to come together when the gospel comes into play, when the gospel begins to change people lives, is that there has to be people willing to, to give of themselves, that has to be people that see themselves entrusted with that gospel, and they speak.
speak and they share their lives and they empty themselves out, they expend themselves and there has to be people who, who the Holy Spirit is working in that are receiving it. And Paul now is going to come back around and say, we're giving thanks to God constantly for this. He's, he's looping back to what he said. He's finishing the thought he began. It's a long thought. This is the way Paul writes his, lots of his, uh, his letters. It's a long thought. He says, I'm thanking God constantly for this. And what is that? What is the this? We'll finish the rest of verse 13. I'm going to put it up there for you. I'm thanking God that having told you that you received the gospel, that it, it did these things in you, and having told you that we came and we spoke the gospel to you, I'm grateful for this, that when you received the word of God, when God's word came to you, you heard from, uh, you heard from us, you, 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 you got, it came out of the mouths of people, right? But when you received it, or when you heard it, you received it as words of men. Let me just read the verse here. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. That's the word I was looking for. You accepted it, not as the words of men, but as what it really is, which it really is, which is the word of God. That's what's in work, at work within you. When the word of God came, you did not say, well, this is just people talking. Now, I struggled with this as I'm prepared, and I struggled with this as I, even now I'm struggling with this, um, in how to convey something or how to uh, pierce through what we all kind of think or what we all sort of, yeah, we, we kind of know, how to pierce through. Because I think in our day and age, and it's really been true since the beginning of time, I suppose, but in our day and age, we spend a lot of time and I want to say even in the church realm, we spend a lot of time having, I'm going to say the word discussions, having discussions about which way things are. This way, this way, this way, or that way. And, and I'm not saying those are bad things. Please, please hear me. But we allow ourselves sometimes to get pulled in this place where we see that it's just people talking to each other. So it's my word and your word and our word. And, and if we get into these what I'm calling discussion, some people might call arguments or these, these, these places of contention, that they're words of men. And we have them all over the place. We have them about politics. We have them about jobs. We have them about economics. We have them about raising children. We have them about marriage. We have them about every facet of life. And like I said, we have them in the church. We have them about church stuff. There's something different that Paul is trying to get at here that he's saying what happened among the Thessalonian believers and why the church took root and began to grow and began to flourish was that there's somewhere, some place that when the words of God came, they stopped and said, wait a minute. These are not just words that people are saying. These are words that God has said. And they put them in a different category. For you and I today, I would suggest to us that we have the Word of God, the printed Word of God, and there should be something very, very, very different, a completely different category that this is put in than what of all the other discussions we may have out here. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And again, I think all of us are like, yeah, I know. So what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to get to for, my, for myself, and I, I think you hear me say this all the time, like I'm with you in this. Because it's so easy then to assume that, well, I'm doing that. But to really check inside, am I doing that? Am I treating this differently? And am I treating this differently than even my 
what I assume to be true of what this says. Because that's the place I find myself in, quite frankly. I've been a pastor for 16, 17, I don't know, a long time. I mean, not a long time for some people, but it's been a while. And I largely make my living by studying this. So one of the biggest traps for me, and I just, this is a moment of honesty with you. One of the biggest traps for me is in thinking I know what the word says and therefore not actually going back and rereading God's word and letting it speak to me and saying, oh, is that actually matching what I, I, I thought in here? Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? Because I'm, I, I've, I've read it before, right? Like I've read it lots of times. So I'm assuming that my, my understanding of the word is, is what it should be. All I'm saying is when we come to this, which we should come to often, it should be in a different category from what we hear from all kinds of other people. Not that other people aren't able to help us see the, what's true. That's, that's exactly what the body of Christ is, actually. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, from people, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, as the word of God. Now, Jesus actually talked about how this dynamic or what this actually does. He told a story. He called them parables. We told a story about it. He said, you know, when you think about a farmer throwing seed in the ground, the condition of the soil impacts what kind of yield you're going to have out of that seed, right? Depending what kind of soil it is, when I throw my seed there, it's going to impact the kind of yield I'm going to get. And the same is true with the condition of our hearts, of us, the soil inside of us, the inner man, if you will, that the effectiveness or the yield or the fruitfulness of the seed or the word of God is, it varies depending on what's inside of here. Now, you know the parable, you probably know what the parable I'm talking about. You can read about it in Luke chapter 8, I think. It's also in some of the other gospels. But it, it's when the farmer sows that seed, it depends on whether there's a hard path there and the seed just kind of falls on the top and nothing, it doesn't actually go in, in fact. He said that gets snatched away. Or maybe it goes in, but it's rocky and it springs up, but it doesn't go down very far. So as soon as the heat of the day comes, or as soon as persecution comes, then it wilts. Or it maybe comes up and it grows well, but there's also lots of other things with it. There's some weeds alongside of it. And so when the worries of life come, then it, it, it chokes out what the gospel is, is doing there. Or some of the soil is really good soil. And so it produces 30, 60, 100-fold crop. Paul is saying the soil in which the word of God came was conducive to a crop coming forth. I think the question should be asked of us if we're aware of those kind of realities is, of course, what kind of soil I have inside of me. I'm not talking about actual dirt inside of us, right? Like, what's the condition of my heart? But maybe more so... We should be concerned about what weeds are still there, what concerns of this world are still there that need to be rooted out, because that's what's going to choke it out, or what, what rockiness is still there, what lack of faith or belief is still there, so that when the testing times come, it won't, my root won't have gone on deep enough, because those are things we can actually prepare, we can allow the Lord to prepare in us. I'd say that's what corrective uh, correction and, and exhortation is about in the body of Christ is taking care of those things or tilling up that soil if you want to put it that way. You know, the writer of Hebrews picked up on the same thing. He reflected on the fact that there was a promise of rest being made to the people of Israel long ago. When they came out of, the, out of slavery in Egypt, there was a promise of rest for them. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. He says, For the good news came to us, just as to them, to the Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Why did it not benefit them? 
Why did they not all enter into the rest that God had promised? God said, there's a promised land coming. There's a, there's a land that I'm taking you to that is your land, and it's full of milk and honey, full of all kinds of good things. And it was given to all of them, but not all of them got, in, got there, right? Why? The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Or depending again, what translation you're reading, it says that it was not received in faith. It was not met with faith. Paul says, when you heard this from us, you received them as words of God, which they really were, which is at work among you, and then he uses the key word, among you believers, and that's the word faith. That, that corresponds with the faith that's here in Hebrews 4.2. It was received by faith. Again, we know the church answer, friends. I'm convinced. You're sitting in church on a Sunday morning. You know the church answer. But do you read this and receive it automatically as this is God's word that must have control over me, must dictate what I believe and think and how I operate? Received by faith as words from God. Paul says, I know that you received these words. I'll move on from that. I know you received these words because you brothers became imitators. Second time he's used that word. He used it in the opening Thanksgiving chapter, a part of the chapter. And also now here, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Interesting phrase. He says, there are churches already back there. In fact, these are some of the churches he was sent from. And he said, I knew that you received the word of God with faith. And the, the gospel began to take, take, take root in you because you began to become imitators of the churches there. And he has something very specific in mind. He gives you the, I mean, he tells you exactly what it is. If you read through it, you know what it is, right? How did they become imitators of the churches of, of God in Christ Jesus that were in Judea? They became imitators because they suffered in the same way. Remember this little line I read in chapter one? He says, the other word, time he uses the word imitator, he says, and you became imitators of us. This is one verse six. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, listen, the Jewish people, I'm from them, is what he would have said, but I, he said the Jewish people, they rejected God's prophets long ago. They rejected Jesus when he came. In fact, they killed Jesus when he came. And then they rejected us and they pushed us out and they, and, they, and they sent us packing. They dispersed us because we were beginning to preach and teach the name of Jesus that salvation is, is in his name, that the Messiah is in fact Jesus Christ. And, they, and, they, and what does he say here? He says, they, uh, they drove us out. Now think back to what happened when Paul, if you want to, would go back and read in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Thessalonica, what happened? He began to teach, few began to believe, and then as what happened in almost all the stops of Paul, the Jews became upset and they drove them out. Remember, this is the exact reason that Paul is writing this letter, right? It's because he was driven out of Thessalonica by the Jews. He actually says, though, that you are facing from your own countrymen the same thing. In other words, from Gentiles, you were facing the same thing. They also were rejecting you. Really, the principle is late, right? When we come to Christ and we come into God's kingdom, the kingdom of the world will reject those. Jesus said that line, right? If they hate you, don't, uh, I'm not getting the exact quote right. They hated me before they hated you. If they hated me, they'll also hate you. The world will hate you because they're, you're not of them. You're of God's kingdom. This is a bit of my paraphrase. Sorry about that. I don't have the exact quote in my head. You became imitators 
But I want you to notice some of the things that Paul said about these because he positions them as saying they were displeasing God. I didn't put that up on the screen, but you can look at it in your, in your, in your Bible there. Chapter uh, 2, verse 15. They displease God. They oppose all mankind. Now, I'm guessing if you would ask the Jewish people whether they displease God and are opposed to mankind, they would say no. Right? They would say, no, we live to please God. But Paul says they displeased God, they opposed mankind. Why? Because they were hindering the gospel from going to the Gentiles that they might be saved as well. I don't know about you, but I think that should have some effect on us. That should prevent us coupling it with last two weeks' message of being entrusted with the gospel. That, that should prevent us from being allowed to slip into a mindset that says, well, I'm saved. I don't care if anybody else gets to know about, about the gospel. Maybe some of those people don't even deserve the gospel because have you seen how they live and the choices they make? And Paul says in that position, if we are going to restrict the gospel of, from going to places to people, then that puts us in a position where we are opposing all of mankind. We are displeasing God and the wrath of God is reserved or is coming to us. Now, we just studied the book of Zephaniah not too long ago which leads me to be able to tell you that we do not want to have the wrath of God hanging over us. Now, Paul's gonna move on in his letter, so I'm gonna move on here because he says, because of the reality that we were driven out, just like the Jews have always done, just like the Gentiles are now doing to you. They're, they're now bringing the pressure to you. Because of that, we were torn away from you for a short time. Not, not in heart, but in body. We were torn away from you for a short time. I want to just focus on that word torn away for a little bit because remember in our last, uh, uh, last text here, Paul used the example of family. He said, we were like a mother among you. We were like a father among you. And now he uses the word torn away, which is actually a, an, an orphan word. The Greek word is aporphanidzo, which that's hard to even say, much less figure out what it means. But the root of that is, is orphaned. It's to be orphaned away from. So he's saying, we felt like children who lost their mom and dad. Interesting, by, by the way, that Paul, notice what he said. He said, we came to you. We were like father and mother to you. But he also isn't going to hold out this positional kind of thing where he's like, I get to lord it over you. Because now he says, when we had to leave, we felt like we were missing our mom and dad. Like we got orphaned. We got pulled away. It was too soon. Think of what he's saying. It was too soon. Paul would have loved to spend more there because it wasn't ready yet. That's what a child would feel like when their mom and dad is taken away, right? It's too soon. The child hasn't grown up enough yet. It was too soon. That's what he's trying to say. We were torn away from you for a short time. And we wanted to come to you. We wanted to return. We wanted to see you face to face. But, look at what the language he uses in verse 18. But we were hindered by Satan. We were hindered by Satan. Interesting. Strong language, right? It's not just a... Well, it would have been an inconvenience for us to have to come back up to Thessalonica because he went south and went all the way down to Athens. Like, it would have been an inconvenience to do that. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying, well, we kind of wanted to, but we had other important things we wanted to do too. No, he wasn't saying that. He said, we wanted to come. I wanted to come. I, Paul, he puts his own name. It's like, I wanted to come see you, but Satan 
hindered us. Now, Paul does something interesting here. He uses not the exact same Greek word, but a similar, similar frame, uh, context word here. He says, Satan hindered us. And just above that, remember we talked about what the Jews were doing? The Jews hindered the gospel. And I believe uh, Paul is trying to give us some theological instruction right in the middle of his letter, which he often does. Because he's reminding them, and he's reminding us, by using the word hindered in both contexts there, I think he's reminding us that often our adversary appears to be in the flesh, right? It's the Jews. The Jews are driving us out. The Jews are persecuting us. The Jews are rejecting the prophets. The Jews are killing Jesus. The Jews are doing all these. The adversary appears to be in the flesh. But when he uses the word the second time, he's revealing to us who the adversary really is, right? The adversary is not in the flesh. The adversary is actually a spiritual being. It's Satan, the one who will oppose us. He is our adversary. That's what the word Satan means, by the way. He is our adversary. And it's in the spirit. Paul would write to the Ephesians, those other words that we are well aware of. We studied Ephesians not too long ago, that our battle is not in flesh and blood, right? It's not against flesh and blood. It's against powers, principalities. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in this dark realm, right? It was not an exact quotation either, but it's, it's a spiritual battle. The adversary, listen, this is important for us. This is really important for us. The adversary always appears to be, or typically appears, I shouldn't use the word always, typically appears to be in the flesh. But the adversary is not in the flesh. It's always the one whom Peter wrote these words about. He is the devil that's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I say that because it becomes so easy for us to begin to despise and look down upon and even hate other flesh who appears to be our adversary. Which puts us in, listen, which puts us in places where we would gladly, willingly, maybe even advocate to restrict the gospel from going to those people because we don't like them. Which puts us in a place where we are opposing mankind and displeasing God and the wrath of God is coming upon us. Do you see the, do you see the chain we just worked back up there? It's why we have to remember our adversary is not flesh and blood. It's Satan. That's where the battle lies. That's where we do our battle. Somehow, by God's ability, his grace, because this is really difficult, right? You live in the same world I live. Somehow, by God's grace and his Holy Spirit-led ability, we maintain the ability to love people and hate what Satan is doing through them. Oppose what Satan is doing through them. What the adversary is trying to stop. That brings me now to this final section because Paul wants to strengthen what he said when he said, I really long to come see you. I really want you to know I thought it was too early. I really want you to see the earnestness, the desire, the great desire. It's what he said there in, in verse uh, 17, the great desire we had to come see you face to face. He says, you are our glory and joy. There's a lot of things we can unpack out of this phrase. I'm going to go back to what he said just before that. He asked a question in verse 19. What is our hope? What other hope do we have? What other joy do we have? What other crowd of boasting do we have before our Lord Jesus at his coming? 
Is it not you? Yeah, it's a rhetorical question, right? Because he, he knows what they're going to, when they're reading this, they're going to know that that's exactly what he's saying. He's not asking really a question like, do I have, where, where is it really at? He's saying, you are it. You are it. You are our hope and our joy and our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. Let's walk quickly through those three words. Here again, we have three things, right? Paul loves his triplets. He says, you are our hope. You're the hope that we have. Now, what could he mean by that? There could be multiple things. I'm not gonna tell you this isn't exclusively what he meant by this, but it could very well be that Paul sees that the mandate he's received from Jesus Christ when he sees the Thessalonians come to, to faith in Christ and to begin to flourish and the gospel begin to change their lives and grow, he says, that's my hope because my hope is that I'm fulfilling what God has called me to do. I know that to be true because when he testified in the, the, the end of the book of Acts, Paul says this. He's talking before Agrippa and he says in chapter 26 of Acts, in verse 18, he says, Jesus has told me directly, he's sending me to the Gentiles, verse 18, to open their eyes, to open the Gentiles' eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I don't have time this morning. Uh, if you want to take the time, it would be a great thing for you to do just to, to hone those study skills. But in that verse I just read, verse 18, you could take some time to pick that verse apart, what Jesus' mandate, his mission to Paul was, and look at some of the things that Paul has already talked about just so far in the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians. You're going to find a lot of similarities. You're going to find a lot of phrases. You're going to find a lot of the same kind of thoughts because Paul if there's one thing that's true about Paul is that he knew the mission God sent him on and he was dedicated to it and he wasn't going to deviate from it. He says, you Thessalonians, when Jesus comes, you're my hope because you're the, you're the thing I'm going to be able to look to and say, I fulfilled my mission. I went to the Gentiles and I helped turn them from, the, from Satan to the kingdom of God. I helped, uh, helped them find forgiveness. I helped them to come out of the darkness into the light. Helped them to place their faith in Jesus. All those things, all those things are things we've already kind of touched on or, or at least in some, some of those things are. He says, you're my hope for that reason when Jesus comes. He also says, you're my joy. Now we're gonna dig into this a little bit later, but if you know that, does anybody know what 3 John 4 says? We don't usually quote things out of 3 John 4, but I'm guessing it's a line everyone knows. And we know what 3 John 4 says? You're sitting here this morning, I'd like to, I haven't given you any, many, questions, many times to answer a question of any kind. What does 3 John 4 say? Anybody know? For I have no greater joy. Yeah, that I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. Now, was Paul talking about his biological children? No. He's talking about the same thing he's talking about here with the Thessalonians. What is our joy when Jesus comes? It's you all. It's knowing that my children, my offspring, that the, that the marriage of, of, of me, of the church in Jesus Christ, was fruitful and multiplied and brought forth offspring, and that, that's what brings me joy. Now, we're going to keep going because we're going to revisit that one a little bit later because that word is used in the phrase we're going to come back to. But he also says, you are our crown of boasting. Our crown of boasting. The reward that we're going to have. Now think of what he's saying. He's saying the reward or the crown that I get to give to Jesus when he returns is people, is souls, right? He's thinking of Jesus' own words where Jesus said, listen, don't, don't store up treasure for yourself here on earth. Thieves can break in and steal it. Moth can come in and, and, and destroy it. Rust can come in and destroy it. Don't do that. 
Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And Paul says, I'm telling you what that is. I'm telling you what that treasure is. Because are you not going to be my crown of boasting? I'm not going to be resting on, look at all the things I did. Look at, look at where I, look at, look at the ways I studied, all those things. I'm going to be presenting souls. Now that, I don't know what that does to you, but that, that, that puts a little pause in my step. A little hitch in my gait. Because it makes me ask myself, is that what I can say? Remember, we just came through two weeks of talking about being entrusted with the gospel. And that there's ownership there. That there's accountability there. That there's going to be an accounting for what we did with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And according to this phrase of Paul, I suspect that among our laurels, if you will, that's the crown, among our laurels, isn't necessarily going to be, now I want to be careful when I say this, because I don't, I, I'm not, I, we, these are all things we should do, but even, even Christian things, I don't know that our laurels are going to be like, I, I know this much of the Bible, or I, I memorized this much of the Bible, or I spent this much time studying, or I, I, I did these X things, I attended church this many times, or I taught this many classes, or I, I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm saying they're means to an end. I'm saying there's a fruitfulness. There's, a, there's something that the gospel is supposed to do, which is to bring more souls to faith in Christ. And I think we're missing it a little bit if that's not where our priorities are. If we can't say the hope I'm going to have before Jesus. Now, I, I'm not talking about salvation hope. I, hope, I should have maybe clarified that again. Because my hope, of course, is in Jesus himself, what he's done for me. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about, like, when I stand before Jesus, my, I, to, for me to be saved. I should have clarified that up front. I'm sorry. For me to be saved is what I've done over here. His salvation is in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about. But his hope that he has done what Jesus has asked him to do will be believers. The evidence of it. His joy will be that there are other people who are following Jesus that are coming before Jesus and going to enter into the gates of righteousness with him. And his crown of boasting will be the work, the expending of himself that he did for their sake that they might also be there. And again, I ask, is that where our priorities are? Is that what we say is most important to us? I'm going to return to that, but I want to, I want to do one little thing here because I make this statement all the time, and I want, to, I want you to see that it's true. That in the middle of Paul's great encouragement, look at the words he used for them. I mean, can you imagine if the Apostle Paul would write words like this to us? I long to see you. I would do about anything to come see you, and you, you are my hope. You're my joy. You're my crown of boasting. But amidst all of that, there's all this theology that gets pulled out. Even in just today's text, look where he went. He went to Jesus being killed on the cross back in verse 15. And now he's talking about Jesus coming again. And you know those two great realities in between there, the only way that can be true is when Paul is very firm in his reality that Jesus was resurrected, right? Because you can't have Jesus dying and Jesus coming again without a resurrection. 
So he's, he's telling them the gospel even as he's encouraging, exhorting, and re- reminding them that I want to come see you. He's continually just reinforcing it. It continually pushes me to see that there are so many ways that the gospel writers, the writers of scripture, found ways to bring the truth of the gospel into all kinds of conversations, all kinds of things, just over and over again. You know, you became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus because they were, they, were, they, were, they were persecuted by the Jewish people. You know those people that killed Jesus. And then he's talking about when Jesus comes again. All those things are just meaning that those are the realities I'm trying to remind you of. Jesus did come. The prophets talked about him. He died. He came back to life. He's coming again, and you're going to answer for it because look at the things he's saying. He's saying when he comes back, here's what I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to because you are my hope. You are my joy. You are my crown of boasting. There's a reckoning coming, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a laying down before Jesus what you've done for his sake. Again, we could go to Jesus' own stories, right? Parable of the talents. We've all received them. And there, at some point, we could go to Jesus' other story where he says that there's a vineyard and the owner sends the, the servants to go get the fruit and they kill the servants. They send them away mistreated. They, they, they reject them and finally says, I'm gonna send this. All those things apply, right? What are we doing with the gospel in our lives. Let me come back to this phrase because I love the simplicity of this phrase and the depth of this phrase all at the same time. Look what Paul's saying. You are our glory and joy. Now we can just read that phrase really quick and say, oh, it's just you know, about you know, half a dozen words there and doesn't mean a whole lot. It's just space filler. It's just something that's nice to say. Or we can choose to look at those words and say, wait a minute, if Paul says that people following Jesus is his glory, and he means it, then that means that Paul is very clear that his citizenship, his allegiance, that he is in a very different kingdom. Because his glory isn't his accomplishments. You can read Philippians and and, uh, and, gain, and gain insight into what he says about this. But his glory isn't his accomplishments, his pedigree, his name, what he's amassed, how much good he's done, what people think of him. That's not his, that's, he's, not, he's not gaining glory that way. His allegiance is demonstrating that I, my glory is when people are connected to Jesus. Again, I don't know what that does to you, but that, that pushes me. That pushes me. Can I truthfully say that that's my glory? When you all get closer to Jesus, that's my glory. When someone new comes to believe in Jesus, that's my glory. And the same thing, the second word is the same thing, right? The joy. Like what's really bringing Paul joy? What's really providing that wellspring of I love life and life is good because of what is it? Paul makes it clear what it is for him, right? His motivation is entirely different. His motivation is entirely different. How ma- let's, let's just be honest. How many of us can truly say that that provides more joy to us than anything else that, that, that we experience when someone grows in faith in Christ or comes to faith in Christ, that that's really what, that's, man, that's, that's, that's what motivates me. That's what brings joy. That's what makes life worth living. Or do we have a whole bunch of other things in there that 
we think provide joy for us. Again, I got to go back to what I said at the beginning, that the word of God is given to us and we should receive it as the word of God, which means we have no choice, my opinion, we have no choice but to believe that Paul absolutely meant this phrase. That his, what he lived for, the kingdom he was part of, and his motivation for life was other people's growth in Christ. I suspect it leaves me, I mean, I, I, not, I suspect for me, I know it leaves me, I suspect it leaves us in a place of recognition of areas we need to grow in. Rearrangements of our priorities and motivations. Making sure we're really in the right kingdom. We're really pursuing the right glory. God, thank you so much for your text this morning. And when I say thank you, I recognize for me it's just weird how this works, God. You know it. Your word is so powerful. You, we could have approached this and said, well, here's sort of this, this transition piece where Paul is getting us from the beginning of the letter to the next part of the letter. He's, he's just making, saying nice, making nice or saying nice about and, and reflecting how he's, he's acquainted with the Thessalonians and wants to be with them and we could just leave it there at the surface. And somehow we come through this text and it's, It steps on my toes, God. It reveals to me. It reveals to me the mixed allegiance I still have. It reveals to me the motivations I still carry that are not fully sanctified, if I could put it that way. It reveals to me how much you want to have for me to grow still. And I thank you for that. I thank you. Because the last thing I want, God, is for me to arrive and the, on the doorstep, so to speak, or for Jesus to return, for you to call me home and me to come to this place and realize that that moment that there was so much that I missed, that I could have known or could have done something about or, or could, have, could have allowed you to work deeper in my life or could have surrendered to you more fully, that to know that there was this great gulf and to know that at that point when I realize it, it's too late. So I thank you this morning for the awareness that you bring to me and to us as a body of Christ of our need for growth in Christ. And we say, God, do that work in us. Reveal to us that which is still of the world, still of our own flesh inside of us. And by God's grace, give us the, the strength to turn and say, I, I mortif mortify that, I kill it, I, I put it to death, never to go back. We receive from you this morning the instruction you give us through the Holy Spirit. We receive from you this morning as words from you, God, and not from men. Thank you that the word of God is active. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul and marrow. Oh, deep inside of us. It reveals to us that all of us are going to have to give an account to you. It leads us paths of righteousness. Thank you, Father. Thank you that when you come with conviction from the Holy Spirit, it is, it is actually an upbuilding thing. It doesn't crush us and destroy us. 
It doesn't discourage us. It pushes us. It, it prods us. It may hurt us some. It disciplines us. But we know it's for our good. And as we yield to it and surrender to you, God, it brings about a fruit of righteousness in us. I pray that that fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of joy, the fruit of long-suffering, of patience, of meekness, of gentleness, the fruit of humility, the fruit of self-control, I pray that that fruit would ever more abound in me and in us as we surrender to you, as we receive your word and let it have its work in us, as we let you rearrange our priorities and the place that we consider our kingdom, our allegiance. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.